All right, if you can find your way back to your seat, that would be fantastic. We'll jump back in. Uh, much love, good people. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Wally. If uh, I haven't met you yet, I'm the teaching pastor here and thrilled that you uh, have chosen to gather with us this morning uh, and on this day in which we have some leftover Thanksgiving, it will be all the more beautiful and lovely. Uh, we have a full, full morning uh, as, as is typical in some ways and then some ways a little bit different. We, we will move towards a meal, but also this, this morning kicks off a season known as Advent. And so Advent is different than Christmas season. I think that's important. People think Christmas, Christmas season is actually quite brief. Advent is longer, and it's the season that leads into and up to Christmas, and uh, it's about active anticipation. So each week, what we're going to do in our gathering is we have our Advent wreath, and we will light a candle, but there will be a scripture reading, and then there will be a reading just explaining what this uh, specific Sunday, which uh, candle we're lighting, and the meaning, the purpose, and ways in which we as a community can be actively anticipating the birth of Jesus, the Christ, together. And so uh, we're going to have uh, different folks up here to lead us each week in our Advent time. Uh, and so this morning, if you would give a, uh, a warm Walker Harbor welcome to Dante and Ruth Jones. They will kick off uh, this first Sunday. Thank you. Good morning. All right. I'll be reading Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23. This is from the message. The birth of Jesus took place like this. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. Before they enjoyed their wedding night, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. Joseph, chagrined but noble, determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. While he was trying to figure a way out, he had a dream. God's angel spoke in the dream. Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to get married. Mary's pregnancy is spirit-conceived. God's Holy Spirit has made her pregnant. She will bring a son to birth, and when she does, you, Joseph, will name him Jesus. God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. This would bring the prophet's embryonic revelation to full term. Watch for this. A virgin will get pregnant and bear a son. They will name him Emmanuel, Hebrew, for God is with us. We light the first candle of Advent to help us remember hope. Hope is the feeling you get when you are sure you will get something you want or when you are sure things will be okay. When Joseph heard the angel's message, he felt hope. The birth of Jesus gives us all hope. Hope is a Christmas gift that won't break.
and so we step into this season known as Advent. As we anticipate the birth of Jesus the Christ, uh, we also step into our last, our final mini-series of this larger series known as the Gospel According to a Young Jewish Man Named Matthew. So we've been spending over a year now walking through this gospel, and uh, we have been doing these little mini-themes that are within uh, the gospel, and so we come to our final mini-theme, mini-series, and so as we come to the end, it's very interesting because we arrive at the end as we start a season that is typically known for the birth or the beginning of Jesus' life, but we're going to be looking at the end of Jesus' life within this. So this final mini-series is aptly called Beginnings and Endings. And this will give us a chance to play in the layers of what this all looks like and for us to tie the, this end and beginning and beginning and end together as we will. Uh, but before we get rolling, I'd like to say a word of prayer. Then we have a toast to be given and then we will jump into a large, beautiful Uh, time of teaching. Gracious God, uh, I bless you for this morning, this day, this new day for us, that you've breathed life into us, that we can gather together as your body, the church, that we can begin this season known as Advent, where our hearts quicken a little bit. We wait actively in anticipation for you, with us, uh, the story of the birth of Jesus, the Christ born among us to show us what you are like, how you are like, and how you meet each person right where they are. God, I bless you for this time that we can um, reflect, that we can light a candle and remember hope and think about hope. So I bless you, God, for this season, this time. And as we step into the scriptures now, um, God, I I pray that the words of my mouth and the posture and meditation of my heart, God, may it bring honor and glory to you and you alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll see if this open flame keeps me... um, It won't. Never mind. Forget it. Um, uh, we have a toast. So what we have been recently doing is we, we want to just pause and sometimes just honor uh, people for, uh, it could be a number of things. Sometimes it's simple. Uh, hopefully it's rather practical things that we do with our life, but we just want to stop and honor them. And so actually a number of weeks ago, we had had a, a meal afterwards, but specifically it was a soup competition as was part of it, and so we had soups, and we voted, and uh, there was a winner, Tara Burgess won soup, uh, so that was beautiful, and so uh, for that, Tara, well done, uh, thank you, because making food is rather, well, I don't want to say it's simple, but it is, a, it is an act, practical, everyone needs it, and when people do that really, really well, oh goodness, it's so beautiful, and so we're grateful for that, but she had gotten her prize on that day, but we were not able to get our dessert uh, champion, and so Helga 
Helga made these fantastic cookies with jam in the middle, and when you ate them, I saw people laying on the ground, and they had to take a nap for a little bit and recover, and it was like, oh, they, you, you had a cookie, correct? Yes, I did. So they're sitting down, their knees were wobbly. Helga, well done, it was so good, and we give you a gift card so you can make more things. <laughs> Thank you, Helga. Oh, I will like what you brought in. Okay, what, and what is this? Show me first. Show me first. Yeah, I'm, okay. Helga made something this morning. I'll tell you about it after it's on my plate. All right, beautiful. Thank you, Helga. Um, uh, we bless God for your skills and gifts in food making. It is good. Okay. Uh, as we jump in, last week, uh, Sarah, uh, our worship coordinator, Sarah walked us through a text in which Jesus once again spoke of his death. And as he did this, his students again were frustrated. His, his students didn't like that he was talking about his death because they don't understand why. They just didn't get why does Jesus keep insisting about talking about his death rather than taking the throne as king. But here's the rub. Jesus was talking about becoming king. It just didn't look like the way they think kingship should go. So they were missing it. And far too often, I would say, today's church has mimicked the miniature mind of the disciples in understanding exactly what kingship looks like. When God becomes king, there are too often times we miss the bigger picture. The disciples then were focused on what it would mean for them when Jesus was king. First of all, as them as individuals, then uh, what it would look like for them as a small group, these 12, like what will it be for us? Then what will it be for a new Jerusalem? What does that look like? And then what will it be for a new Israel? But then it stops there for them. And they are painstaking in their waiting for Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire. When are you going to overthrow Rome so then they can take their place alongside the king in positions of honor? But to accomplish all of this, Jesus, you have to be alive. So this death talk, it's confusing, it's frustrating, and frankly, Jesus, it sounds a bit crazy. Now, if we're honest, the depth and width of what Jesus was doing with his life is often missed today. It's oversimplified and often shrunk to an individual piece, and maybe then it's often personal, but we miss out on the communal and certainly the universal work that Jesus was up to. So now, as we enter into today's text, it's the most intimate part of a uh, festival known as the Passover festival, which is the most important festival for the Jewish people. Now, the Hebrew people, for this festival, they'd be preparing their hearts to remember and reflect on the, the great rescue of their ancestors known as the Exodus. And they would spend this time reflecting on that. The Passover festival centers around a meal. 
But this was so much more than a simple meal. It was an interactive liturgy about the power of rescue and liberation and the long journey of becoming the people of God. But we have also arrived at a breaking point in our story. As one of Jesus' students, he's run out of patience. He's done waiting for Jesus to overthrow Rome. So with that, would you join me? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 14. So let's read. Then one of the twelve of the disciples, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, Judas's question to the chief priest brings us back to one of the questions that Sarah raised for us last week. Last week, we looked at a number of different characters in the story, and they were faced with a question of, what is Jesus' life worth to you? What is Jesus' life worth to you? For the chief priests, we see the value apparently is 30 pieces of silver. And by accepting that amount, I guess that was good enough for Judas too. First, to betray a friendship for money was considered abhorrent in ancient ethics. I would say probably still true today. Secondly, the amount, 30 pieces of silver, it would equate to about four months of a daily worker's wage. Four months. So think an extended vacation. Next, the 30 pieces of silver functions as a hyperlink. So we might think of it to the Hebrew scriptures and the larger biblical narrative. In the book of Exodus, when the Hebrew people were given Torah, the instructions of God, they were given specific instructions surrounding servants or what they called as slaves. So in Exodus 21:32 it says this, if a bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 pieces of silver to the master of the slave and the bull is to be stoned to death. Now you know this cuz this happens all the time today. We read this, and I know this sounds a bit bonkers. Like, what is happening here? And I get it. That, that makes sense. It seems weird. But what they were doing here in this text is they were placing a specific value on a slave or a servant, and that value is 30 pieces of silver. If something happens to your servant and someone else is responsible, or like your bull is responsible, then you have to pay for that, that's what they were doing. So what is happening then in this text of around um, Jesus is the chief priests have offered Judas and what he accepted would be contextually understood as Jesus being viewed as a slave or a servant working to meet their end goal. We'll give you 30 pieces of silver. We think he is just a servant or a slave to what we are trying to get done. That's what we will show you in this. Jesus was merely a pawn in the plans of both the chief priests and Judas. And what we see here is Judas has surrendered his um, student, his studentship, being a student of Jesus, as well as his friendship for money. 
He's given it away for money. This exchange between Judas and the chief priests is also a hyperlink. Now, the Hebrew word for this hyperlink that sends us different places, the word is remez. Go ahead and say remez. Remez, it's a Hebrew that always is like linking the text and it's making the story bigger and we're seeing how the story is wider. So this is also a remez to the Hebrew prophet Zechariah. So in chapter 9, real quick, chapter 9 of Zechariah, it speaks of the divine saving, shepherding, and caring for his sheep, his people. Chapter 10 continues in this where we read, and it also reveals the divine anger at the leadership of Israel because they have not shepherded with care and love in the people. And so you see some divine anger saying, you have not loved the sheep in this way. You have not shepherded them. Then we move into chapter 11, and we are given a picture of two different kinds of shepherds. One shepherd who sells his flock, ready, for 30 pieces of silver to some buyers. And then we read, what do the buyers, why do they want it? They only want the flock for this reason. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 5. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I'm rich. The shepherd just says, ah, it's all right, I made money. For this shepherd who unflinchingly sells his flock, shepherding is a transaction and it's simply about making money. He did not care about the sheep. So then the, re the prophet responds in verse 7 and says this, so I shepherded the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staff and called one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them, which leads to this. I told them then, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me what? 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. First, in this, can you see remnants of our story a few weeks ago where we were looking at the sheep and the goats? And they were saying, uh, the sheep on one side, and you cared for me, you gave me water when I was thirsty, food when I was hungry, you clothed me when I was naked. And they said, when did we see you in need? And he said, when you saw someone else in need, that was me. So Jesus, or uh, uh, the prophet here is talking about the divine, the holy one, and, and within this interaction saying, well, how you valued them, the divine is saying, that was the value they put on me. How you value the sheep? Well, that's the value you put on me. So you have remnants of that taking place. And then the divine says, the value you place on the sheep, well, that's, that's it. That's the same as me. And there are many, many more layers. Because first, this story, what we're seeing here, it's the story of the ancient Hebrew people. They abandoned relationship with the divine and the ways of the divine even after they had been rescued from Egypt and then were brought to the promised land, and then they, but they abandoned the divine when they got what they wanted, essentially. And that led to exile in Babylon. 
And why did that happen? Because the divine was simply a means to their end goal of being a powerful, on top of everyone else nation. Once they felt self-sufficient, when they had a strong military and they had a bunch of money, they ignored the one who was their rescuer. That's like a summation of the Hebrew scriptures really quick-like. And now we see that story being repeated first by the religious leaders, the chief priests, as well as in Judas. Jesus was simply a means to their end goal. And it's here that we we could stop and we go, it would be really easy to kind of bag on the chief priests. It would be really easy to bag on Judas. What's their problem? What's their deal? Why would they sell out like this? But I wonder how often this way of using God or using Jesus still happens today. Do we find Christians who are supposed to be caring shepherds who pay particular attention to the oppressed, as it said in the text, but who merely use Jesus in a game of their preferred politics? Or do we see people use Jesus as a religious business? Like, yikes, right? In this story, with Judas and the religious leaders, as it's kind of all swirling and taking shape, in the midst of that, Jesus gathers his 12 disciples, his students, including Judas, and he says, let's prepare to have the Passover meal. So Matthew 26, 17 to 19, we go back to that. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover meal? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, what this would mean, these preparations would mean, you in, it includes procuring an unblemished, sacrificed lamb from the temple. You get some bitter herbs, unleavened bread, some fruit, and lots and lots of wine. Then, verse 20, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, next, the details of this meal are really, really interesting and really, really important. We see that Judas has not given Jesus the kind of honor or respect of a king. In general... This is a problem, but let's look at some of how that looks. Um, if we just first compare what was said by the 11 disciples and compared to Judas, they say, the 11 disciples say, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Judas said, Sur- uh, surely not I, Rabbi. 
You see these differences here? Judas, we have nowhere in the text that there is no record of Judas ever addressing Jesus as Lord. He only says rabbi, which is great teacher. But G Judas never sees Ju uh, Jesus as worthy of kingship. We don't see that in the text. We never see him like honor and say, I think you're worthy of kingship. And we see it in these passages, surely not I, rabbi. Now, then as we get into the details, we'll see that this idea of Judas not honoring Jesus, it can be heartbreaking, but when we get into the details, we will see that it actually becomes excruciating and even more painful. Matthew had here Jesus reclining at the table. The Gospel of Mark gets at how all of the disciples position themselves at the Last Supper. So Mark 14, 17, uh, 17 to 18. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve while they were all, right? They're all reclining at the table eating. Now I'm guessing that uh, most, maybe all of you have seen Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper from 1498. Looks like this right? It's beautiful. This is beautiful artwork, and it is an absolute train wreck contextually, okay? But this is like shaped our imagination as it pertains to this event, the Last Supper. Long table with everyone sitting on the same side. It's nice for a painting, but it's way off of the actual context, because it says they are reclining, which means lying on one's left side, feet pointing away from the table so their feet could be washed by the servant. They would eat with their right hand because this is proper hygiene in the first century. In the first century, your left hand is used for the restroom. But your right hand then is how you would greet someone and, and what you would use to eat. So they'd be on their left side being able to eat with their right hand, feet away from the table as to be washed. And the tables would be set up as a triclinium. Go ahead and say triclinium. Which would be a U-shaped setting adopted from Roman culture. So we get a picture like this, which is closer this is more how it would be set up. So this is getting closer, but it's still, this one is still a bit off. Because the seating, the order and way in which people are seated has incredible meaning. So we're going to hang here and I'm going to walk this out a little bit. The host of the feast would not sit in the middle. So we are seeing Jesus, at least what they have, in the middle. The host would not sit in the middle. The host would sit second to last on the left end. So this would be the host. Then to the right here would be the second guest of honor. So they would say the second most important person or the second guest of honor would be here. The guest of honor the most honored one by the host would be on the uh, host's left side. Then they would just make their way around the table. And on the far right side, from our viewpoint, on the far right side, that is the servant's seat. So the servant would be one who would go around and wash everyone's feet. The servant would go get more food if they're running low. The, the servant would be able to get up and do this. 
Now, John, the Gospel of John, is going to give us insight into how this specific meal would have been laid out. In John chapter 13, verse 23, it says this, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, John is writing about who here? Himself. (laughs) The one whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means as who's going to betray me. Leaning what? Oh, so where does that place John? To Jesus' right, and the second guest of honor, the one whom Jesus loves, the second guest of honor, who can then lean, as the King James Version says, lean against Jesus' bosom uh, and whisper to him, like, right, okay, well, who is it? Um, Leaning back against him, Lord, who is it? It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas. Jesus is the host, second seat on the left end. John leaning against Jesus' bosom is the second seat of honor, which then the end seat on the far right, the servant seat is Peter, motioning to Jesus, or motioning to John, to, hey, hey, I can see you across the table. Ask him, ask him. And we get this tipped off by Peter is the lead disciple. He's the senior disciple. He's the oldest, what we learn from the text. And what has Jesus been teaching his disciples all along? The last should be first. The first should be last. Jesus says leadership is found in serving. And Peter did what at the Last Supper? Argued with Jesus about, you're not washing my feet. Part of that is I'm washing people's feet. I should be washing your feet. I'm in this place. Then if we follow our text in context, Jesus then hands the bread that is dipped to Judas. Friends, the seating looks like this. Jesus, John, who is the honored guest at this meal? Judas. Judas is in the highest seat of honor. Shocking, right? But this shows how Jesus loved and honored Judas, even if Judas didn't give that honor back. The way in which Jesus constructed this meal was purposeful, revealing his magnanimous love for every single person. And there's so much more. Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Whoa. Sometimes something can be so familiar to us that we miss it. He just said, this is my body, but the Passover meal has always been about the great rescue of the Hebrew people known as the Exodus. The Hebrew scriptures are really clear on what they were to remember with this bread. Deuteronomy 16.3 says it like this. Do not eat the sacrificed lamb, it they said, the sacrificed lamb with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread. The bread of what? Affliction, they know this from their journey, because you left Egypt in haste so that 
all the days of your life, you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. That's what this meal is about. That's the tradition. Unleavened bread is about remembering the exodus. But Jesus at this meal says, this is about my soon-to-be afflicted body. Jesus has just taken a 1,500-year-old tradition. 15, about 1,500 years they have been practicing this meal and remembering the exodus. And Jesus said, this is now about me. Can you feel that? Real quick, if I were to just say, oh, you know what, we're going to quick change tradition from the last mm, 300 years. Uh, real quick, um, last 500 years, Reformation, and we're going to do some things a little bit different. It now means this. Do you see at this meal, Jesus just lost his ordination. Uh, he just lost his membership in whatever denomination you want to do. He just said, this is about me. Do you think everyone's sitting around the table go, oh, okay, that's fine. Do you imagine if I said right now, I'm changing a tradition from a decade ago. Some of you would go, I, th I think we have to leave. I think that bald guy's a heretic. We can't be here right now. What's happening? Our, our, our chair might burst into flames. Jesus just switched a 1,500-year-old tradition and said, it's about me. And we just read it and go, okay, that's fine. Keep going. Verse 27. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. Now, this cup is understood to be the third of four cups of wine that would be served at the Passover meal. So a third cup of wine served out of four. Each cup represents the four promises that the divine rescuer made to the Hebrew people when delivering them from Egypt. The third promise is for the redemption of the people. That's the promise made. It's written in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. It reads this. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Here are the four promises. I will bring you out. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you, and I will take you to be my own people. These are four promises. Now, what happens from this, which is fascinating, these four promises become the central piece to an engagement ceremony when a young Jewish man would propose to his bride. This is how they would do an engagement ceremony. The, the Jewish young man would say to her, he would offer her a cup of wine, and he would say, I will bring you out from your parents' home. I will free you from being a servant in their home. I will redeem you, and I will take you to be mine. We will be a family together now. This is what a young man would say to a woman, and how she said yes is she wouldn't say yes, she would take the cup, and if she drank the wine, that was her yes. What Jesus is doing at this meal is doing a divine proposal of marriage. Verse 28 of Matthew 26. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did it again. Now he's comparing the wine at the meal to his blood, which again takes us back to the Exodus. Exodus 24, 8. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my... Oh, is that right? Oh, where are we? 24, 8. Is that not in there? Okay, beautiful. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Jesus at least just has them drinking wine rather than chucking blood on them. That's at least helpful, right? But what he's, <laughs> what he's doing with the wine is he's instituting a new covenant. Jesus is doing something massive here. This is a new marriage between us and the divine, which that idea of a new covenant takes us, it's a hyperlink to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah's writing to the exiles in Babylon. The prophet insists that, hey, I know you, your infidelity to the Lord is not the last word. In Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, here we go. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a what? Husband to them, declares the Lord. Yeah, we were married once, and you know what? Basically, on the honeymoon, you can read in the Exodus, they cheat on God. In the honeymoon phase, they do the, the, the golden calf and worship, and they lose the plot right away. Moses didn't even come back down yet. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Now, the Hebrew word there means the seat of thought and emotion. That's where my law will set. And I will inscribe it on what? Their hearts. Friends. Your heart has the signature of the divine on it. Etched, tattooed on your heart is the signature of the divine. That's where this will be placed. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now that word no in the Hebrew is the word yada. Go ahead and say yada. Yada, if you've been around for even a little amount of time, this is one of my favorite words. It's someday maybe possibly be a tattoo for me. It's an experiential knowing. It's experiential knowing. That's why he said you're not going to have to teach people this because they will have encountered, they will have awakened, they will have some idea because it will be on their hearts, in their hearts. The idea is, we know this because sometimes you're alerted. Sometimes there's a nudge within you. You feel something stirring within you that I know there's more. I know this is bigger than just this moment. I feel compelled that something more is there for this life. That inkling, that feeling, that nudge, that, that pinch that you get in your very being is the signature of the divine. 
So the question becomes, will we draw from, look for, or be alert, alert to the sacred signature that is tattooed on our hearts? Will we be awake to it? Will we pay attention to that which is deepest within us? It's brilliant, this new covenant. Jesus recalling the prophet Jeremiah and this promise, think about that first, that, that last supper, this meal. The students' heads would be spinning and their hearts reeling. Is this really happening? This new covenant that we have memorized, that our ancestors have dreamt about, have talked about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Jesus is saying this is happening now here in this small room with us. Is this, he is changing 1,500 years of tradition and saying a divine marriage anew is happening. Jesus has been teaching. What has he been teaching? That he would fulfill the law, meaning fill it to the full, meaning extend it to its most expansive Form. That's what Jesus had taught. Jesus was moving the instructions of the divine from a memorized script stuck on stone into an expansive way of living and being in this world that would be tattooed on each person's heart. Matthew 26, 29 to 30. We keep going. I tell you, Jesus says to him, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now next week, we're going to talk about the hymn they sung. And maybe we'll sing it together. If you're like, we know, we do. Now, what Jesus was doing at this Passover meal would have been shocking and borderline offensive to his students reclining around the table. Jesus was taking this ritual, practiced for some 1,500 years, and he was transferring the very carefully chosen and memorized words, and he's placing them on himself. This was no longer a ritual about back then, but it's about what he is doing and through his very life, what he is making possible, while also stitching it, again, as he's talking about his death. What the text never mentions in this meal is the central element. What's the central element to the Passover meal? The lamb. Where is the lamb? That's what they'd be asking. And actually, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they have been asking, where is the lamb? We're going to talk about that in three weeks. But as we come to the end of Matthew's biography of Jesus, we return to the beginning to tie some clouds together, to see what has been unfolding with Matthew the entire time. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From his very first words, Matthew is placing Jesus as the center of this massive story of humanity. Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the culmination of the entire story. He is not plan B. It has always been the plan. And the Lamb of God, the central character of the entire story, is found on the lips of John the baptizer. John 
chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love this. I think it is so important, so big. The what? Sin, singular, which is actually all of it. Just so we're clear. Some sin? All sin of the world. Don't we miss that? The story has been arching toward a new exodus, one in which the divine would rescue and remove the sin of all people. And Matthew has now shined a spotlight on the divine's marriage moment. So here's what I want us to do. Imagine 13 people tucked into a small room, hidden away privately in Jerusalem. And Jesus, in this small room, around this table, or tables, he takes a 1,500-year-old ritual, and he says, that will be about me now, which can seem like a really small moment, and yet it changes everything for everyone. So uh, what I want to do is a couple pictures to help us get our heads around a room. Uh, this was from this past May. We were in a village in the Galilee known as Katsreen. But why we're in Katsreen, which is not mentioned in the Bible, but it's in the Galilee, is because there is, this is where they actually have a reconstructed first century home. And so to go there and to be in the home and see how daily life looks like for the average Isra Israelite, we jammed into this house um, there, that's not a baker, uh, that's me in the doorway, and I was reading a story, and we were looking at the story of where Jesus is teaching in a home, and they lowered a guy through the roof because they couldn't get to him. Of course they couldn't get to him. You can't fit in that tiny little house. And so, like, how are we going to get to him? So we're doing this, and to experience this, and we were dressed in first century garb, and we did through daily, next pick. This is the room empty, but I wanted to show this because one, it's small, and this little ladder, that little ladder goes to the upper room. And oh, by the way, I don't have a good picture. I have one picture of the upper room. It's blurry because it's tiny. And the people that were in the upper room, I think we had six people crammed into that upper room, they were like this because it's small. So when we have Leonardo da Vinci's like, they're in a mansion, they got a table that apparently is 15 feet long and fit all these people, and you're like, no, sorry, that's terrible. They're jammed into these little stone homes, they're tucked away, they're eating, there's likely animals not far from them. Like, this is not the scene. So, with this in mind, small house, tucked in, triclinium setting, U-shaped, Here's what I want you to do. Would you close your eyes? Or continue closing your eyes. <laughs> you see the stunned and perplexed look on the disciples' face. I want you to go to this room, this small little room. You're in this U-shaped setting, and you look up and you see the disciples' faces. Think of Peter's furrowed brow as he is again frustrated with Jesus talking about his death. And he's doing it in the midst of the biggest and most important Jewish festival. Picture Judas sitting in the seat of honor, 
But you now know that he has shown what he thinks Jesus' life is worth, 30 pieces of silver, which amounts to an extended vacation. Yet Jesus has placed him in the highest seat of honor. What a jarring lesson for all of us. Open your eyes. Individually and collectively, the disciples are stuck in their small stories. Thoughts of vengeance, thoughts of power, thoughts of money, thoughts of positions of societal importance when Jesus is king, they all function to construct a wall around their heart's imagination about what is actually taking place. And I can relate. How about you? Do you ever get stuck in a small story? Do you ever learn a way and then it becomes the only way? Or maybe you have crafted a narrative around a hurt that was inflicted upon you and now it seems nearly impossible to rewrite that narrative. That small room in Jerusalem was full of thousand emotions for these disciples and one Savior who desired to heal all of them. This was a traditional ritual meal meant to recall the past in order to open the heart's imagination for the future. But Jesus' students are stuck in their small story of kingship. Judas is stuck in his small story of power and money. The chief priests are stuck in their small story of political power. And yet Jesus still offers his life for all of them, each of them. Even though they're stuck in their small story, he says, I will give my life that you can have a new story, a new life. Jesus stitches this whole thing onto himself, which is the center of a new exodus, a new covenant, a new marriage that will be in invited for all people. What was true then is true for you and I here today. What story are you stuck in? What old relationship is keeping you from experiencing the best relationship? Jesus wasn't trying to start a new religion. One of the favorite things that the chief priest would have probably called him, whatever language they used, is heretic. Didn't give a rip. He wasn't trying to just be a rebel who's overturning tradition. That wasn't what he was doing. He was proposing a new way to be human, which is the eternal way of living with the divine. Jesus was using his life as a cosmic sponge, absorbing all sin and death. And Jesus was inviting all people out of their small stories and into the bigger, massive story. Yet Jesus never forced people to say yes. He never manipulated people to say yes. He invited and then he left room in each person's heart 
to come to their own conclusion. Will you say yes to the bigger story? And that invitation is offered to every single one of us here today. How will you respond to the invitation to the big story? The more that is taking place. Now within that, we have a tradition in which we take what? Bread and cup. But we, around a meal, we take time to practice what is known as the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper, which is the good gift where Jesus takes it and compares it to his body, his blood, and we do that. But it was around a meal that this took place. So we're going to just keep walking this teaching out. If you notice, how is our meal set up behind you? It's a triclinium, of course. So we'll gather together um, worried people will fight to not be in Judas' seat. But anyways, <laughs> we're fine. But we're going to go over and we're going to spend time and we're going to share a meal together. And in the midst of our meal together, at some point, we're just going to stop, we'll pause, and I will just lead us in saying, at this meal, at this time, in this place, we pause and we recognize that as we share a meal, the food, all of it, it's a picture of Jesus' body gifted for us. Our drink, it's a picture of Jesus' blood poured out for the healing of humanity. Expunging all our sin and death. Yes, 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 yes. And we'll do that together around a meal as, as they did in the first century. And if for you, you're like, I didn't plan on staying. Uh, obviously, everyone hopefully can stay. But if you can't, and if you're like, no, I have to run out, um, we have uh, over here, we have a table set up and we would love to be able to serve you uh, communion, the Eucharist, if you have to go, that we can at least serve you that before you go, if you would like. The rest of us, though, we're staying for a meal, we will do it during that time. And we will share in that together around a first century table and setting, remembering, anticipating the one who has gifted his all that we can have a bigger, broader story that we live in. So we begin the end. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, you have offered us a new way to be human. You have invite us, invited us into a new way to live life with you. You've removed the barrier of death. It does not get the last word. You have forgiven all our sin, all of it. You have forgiven, clearing a way for us to walk with you following in your ways to live a new life, the forever life beginning now, here. And we bless you, God, for loving us that much, for loving us, all of us, in such a way as you would give your life to take away all death and sin. 
and you propose to us a new life, a new marriage, a new day, and a new way forward. I bless you, God, for that. My heart and my prayer is that each person here in their own way would say yes to you, yes to your ways, yes to your life, yes to living in and through you. May our hearts be aglow. May we experience you, yada, you even here now in this moment. Continue to speak to us as we sing, as we connect, and as we share in this meal. May you, God, as you do, continue to speak to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.